Hello, this is Maria Bustillos with the podcast of me and Harry talking to interesting media voices. And uh, we have another New York voice today, Max Reed, who has just started a wonderful newsletter called Read Max. Um, he's one of the many geniuses who are being who have been wooed by Substack into writing fabulous newsletters for us. So we're really happy to have him here. Welcome, Max. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So we've had just two newsletters so far, but Max has a wide and enthusiastic readership who's clamoring for more. They've already been amazing. And the first one I wanted to talk about because it's been so much in the news is uh, your Facebook Um there's, there was one about Facebook and there was one about uh, DAOs, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk about both of them. <laughs> but um, the Facebook one is so interesting because of uh, Ben Smith's take, I thought, was fascinating in the New York Times um, about uh, Frances Taugen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but her uh, whistleblowing antics and where that whole thing is going. She too turns out to be a crypto investor. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Okay, so tell me about why you wanted to write about that and tell me what you think about the Ben Smith thing and how this all fits into your views of the newsletter land. Yeah, um, I mean, this is actually sort of interesting with respect to, I know that you want to talk about why newsletters and what's interesting about newsletters. Um, so let me do a behind a story behind the story thing with this. I had an op-ed placed at the Times um, along similar lines to what the newsletter ended up being. And uh, the Times decided to kill it. And I'm not really sure why. I think it was just a little late um, or they felt like it was late. I don't think there was any sort of behind the scenes machinations around the consortium, though it would be nice to think there was some conspiracy that killed my newsletter. (laughs) And um, I I have my old friend and editor, Tommy Craggs, is freelance editing me for for the newsletter right now. And initially I had the thought that I would just republish the op-ed I'd written for the Times. Um, and just let me summarize for people who haven't read it yet. The, um, the, the, the thrust of the newsletter is that, um, you know, the, the Haugen whistleblowing documents are, um, are revealing the, the fact that they've, they've sort of traveled as widely as they had, have and affected as many people as they have more so than anything since at least Cambridge Analytica and possibly more than anything in Facebook's scandal ridden history. Um, the, the reason that that's the case is that they touch on a particular um, quality of experience with Facebook, that we have a lot of evidence and knowledge about Facebook's um, sort of structural, political, economic effects on, you know, media, for example, or on the tech industry, but that we don't have a lot of ways of talking about the kind of affective experience of using Facebook and the way it makes us feel inside. And so my contention is that Haugen, the documents that she's leaked you know, especially the ones around, uh, the ones that got the most attention around Instagram, um, teen girls, teenagers and kids in general, uh, that the reason that they have such a, has such a kind of outsized impact has been that they, they hit on these things that we, many of us, probably all of us know about and feel about Facebook, which is that it kind of makes us feel like crap. So, uh, anyway, so I had this op-ed and I sort of dressed it up and I was ready to publish the newsletter and then talking with Tommy, I, it sort of became clear that, you know, this was not really what I wanted the newsletter to be like. It was written like a Times op-ed. It was straight and not very mm-hmm. funny and not very personal. And I realized, too, as I was writing it, that this was what was interesting to me about this debate was less the sort of specific argument that I that I was making that I just laid out than the 
an ongoing set of arguments between tech critics about Facebook itself. Um, and so I rewrote most of it to kind of um, position it in the context of that dispute. So, you know, without setting, without setting aside the, the, the thing I was saying before about the sort of um, emotional psychic experience of Facebook, which is true, and I believe, I also wanted to write about an ongoing kind of dispute between two broad camps of Facebook critics um, and the kind of challenge of writing about technology like Facebook, where you want to, on the one hand, situate it historically in context and say, look, Facebook may be bad, but it's bad in ways that we are familiar with and bad in ways that we can touch on that we've had monopolies before that, you know, we have uh, hyperpartisan media already out there in the world. But you also want to be able to say maybe Facebook is new and in what ways is Facebook new? So I took what was like a 1200 word, fairly straightforward op-ed that um, I think would have been fine. I don't want to, you know, say it was it was bad at all, but it was sort of, it, it, it's the kind of compromise that you make when you're writing for a big outlet and uh, a particularly institutional one. And I tried to spin it out into something that felt more like what might what I might produce if I really were just emailing somebody or a friend about um, about uh, if who had questions about this. I don't know if that even gets at what your original question was, Maria. Yeah, it's great, Ma- Max. You 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 brought up in in, in this piece right that uh, offline and online, I believe it is, was railroad talk, and, <laughs> yeah. and that a lot of the shit with Facebook is not in fact new shit. Uh, it, it's it's the same shit. And one of the things that grabs me is Facebook is very new and very different in some interesting ways. Uh, but the things that are most quantifiably new and different are, in my views, uh, are often bullshit. So mm-hmm. the thing I come back to was, was, was BuzzFeed's reporting, which very talented people are doing right after the 2016 election, mm-hmm. where they're like, uh, look, you know, this stupid story about the Pope endorsing Donald Trump got uh, 1.75 Four three two point six one pi impressions. It was the most circulated thing, and you know you have a number behind that. It's an actual number. It has some meaning, and then the suggestion is this twisted the election. And I am very confident that that that, that no adult grandpas, subliterate goons, or anyone else were like, wait a minute. You know somebody shared this thing with me saying Pope endorsed Trump. I'm a big Pope guy. I had voted <laughs> for Trump. Now I voted for Biden. So you have a real number. But a number that doesn't tie into any any real outcome. But the, yeah. the, that sort of thing circulates frequently. And it circulates on Facebook as bad information. And it circulates in debunking circles and anti-Facebook circles, the same mm-hmm. sorts of bad information. I'm wondering if, if you see, as, as a smart observer of a weird near future or present things, any, any way out of that sort of trap? I mean, I think that it's, uh, well, it's, I'm, let me, I'm trying to think of the best way to frame this. I, I, you know, I think that it's the kind of thing that if you stop, if any like rational observer stops for a minute and thinks about it, you know, that just can't be true. That people don't make decisions about who they vote for based on shit they see on Facebook. Um, but what's sort of intriguing about it to me is it folds back in on itself. And I think that, you know, you fold your BuzzFeed article that says people shared this Pope thing a million times and people voted for Trump because of Facebook uh, for a lot of those same reasons that a lot of this is this is a kind of uh, is that you 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 pull into yourself these ideas about how the world works and you share stuff that you know in the same way that I, you know if I'm a if I'm a hyperpartisan Republican I know the Pope didn't endorse Trump but I'm sharing my Trump 
my my Trump article as a way of uh, expressing my political allegiances say that, you know, on the other side, you kind of have, and I don't mean to both sides this, but on the other side, you kind of have people sharing for the same set of reasons. Um, That doesn't really answer the question of how to get out of this particular trap. But I think that part of the trouble here is that in, 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 at no point has the kind of, um, I don't want to, you know, empirical or rational or thoughtful idea about how people assess information and make decisions ever entered into any of that, any of that circle of kind of I think it's really important to remember that, like, the idea of verification, you know, where something is verifiably true, like we say true, you know, about the Pope, for example. I mean, I think there's plenty of people. I mean, I unfortunately have family who were uh, kind of fell into this sort of toxic hole, and they would share that. And I don't want to say that they would, like, I have a niece, you know, who would totally share that. And not not to uh, subject the utterance to um, any kind of verification or to the level of belief. It's almost like a matrix of fantasies that they share for fun, kind of like, I don't know, like regular people would quote lines from Zoolander. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, a, there's like a weird... Um, there's something about the structure of Facebook, very obviously, the, the obligation is not to share things for the sake of giving information to other people, but to share things for the sake of creating and performing a particular kind of identity online. And exactly. insofar as that's true, you know, truth doesn't really enter into it. And, I, you know, I think that the I didn't read the Michiko Kakatani book, but I know she wrote a big, long thing about sort of post-truth and the truth era. And yeah. I, it seems to me that, that we've moved a little beyond that sort of in the discourse, the idea that we've we've been ushered into thanks to Facebook or or postmodernism or whatever that we live in the post-truth world. And, and it seems to me to be the wrong frame to even be thinking about this stuff. That, that What's at stake in discussions about Facebook and news and what people are and aren't sharing and how they form particular worldviews isn't a question of truth and what's truth and what's not truth, but it's a question of trust and what institutions and people you trust. Um, You know, I think that like, and I think this is something a lot of journalists will tell you that it's a lot less about like, can I furnish all of the data, all of the facts, all of the reporting to demonstrate to you that what I'm saying is true. And you still might not believe me because you just don't trust my outlet. You don't trust the Mm -hmm. logo that goes at the front of my paper. You don't, you know, this is, I mean, maybe I have a really intimate knowledge of this because I worked at Gawker for so long. And it was like, we spent a lot of time saying things that we knew to be true, but because of who we were and because of how we positioned ourselves and because of who our allies and enemies were, there was a huge number of people who just steadfastly refused to believe these things we were saying. Um, And, you know, I don't have like, if I knew how to fix sort of the the crisis of trust in America, I would be, I would not be on this podcast. I'd be working to do that right now. (laughs) But, but I, but like, I think that's like, that's, you know, in terms of like figuring out a way to like move beyond the kind of endless, like, oh, people share untrue things and there's a misinformation crisis. I think, I think you really have to get right what's going on, which is a breakdown of institutional and social trust. Let me circle this back because you are actually moving the needle right now by being on this podcast. Well, that's, I, I, I that, hope so. I didn't mean to, I, I, the last thing I want to do is no. disparage the reach of the podcast. Oh, no, <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. Um, just the Hagen issue is what I was going to try to get back to because we're talking about like what made this, uh, the moment that people started really paying attention. And I thought it was the most interesting thing about it, about like, for example, teen girls feeling bad, 
you know, and, and bringing this back to the affective sort of levels of how people understand Facebook and their own participation in it. When people were reading about, you know, Facebook is participating, you know, in, in uh, fomenting racism in India or, um, you know, actually encouraging genocide, you know, in Myanmar, other places, like people can't relate that to swapping photographs of their cat, right? Hmm. It's like with their grandma, like that right. just doesn't make any sense. But like Haugen, I think, started to unite these things in a way that started to make sense. It's like the reason that, you know, there's this sort of Venn diagram meets up in the place where Facebook makes money and pushes advertising and 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 benefits itself and is willing to tell untruths to people for its own benefit. And I don't really think anybody could unite all of those things in one place until this lady came up with yeah. her eight bitrillion documents. And so I think that this is the way we we do counter it. And I think this is the way that your newsletter is helpful because it's like, here's a regular person who's like really fucking pissed off and it's not polite and it's not in the New Yorker, you know, and it's not in the New York times and it's not anywhere where it will be siloed away. It's just one person talking about like, you know, ideas and experiences in a really untrammeled way. I think it's extremely helpful. And I think it's exactly the counter to the kind of it's like, um, you know, evil monopolistic institutionalized exploitation of people's attention that, uh, that we're talking about. So yeah, you're doing, you're doing Lord's work, Max. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you. I hope so. I, I will say that, you know, I've been writing about Facebook and its peers, but probably Facebook more than any of them uh, for seven or eight years now. Like what got me started thinking hard about this stuff was working at and eventually running Gawker and being witness to the extent to which Facebook changed the industry in around 2011, 2012 to 2013. That, you know, people have heard this story a million times before, especially media people, but the way the, the traffic fire hydrant kind of opened and overnight the voice of about every publication on the internet just completely changed in order to match what was going on there. And I spent a lot of time writing that story or versions of that story, and a lot of people did. And that stuff was very popular among people who worked in media, I think, or people who consumed a lot of media because it had that it had that level of like, I intuitively can grasp what you're talking about because I live and work here. But I think for a lot of people outside of media or for whom their um, consumption of you know news media is relatively infrequent, it, it's much harder for that to sort of break through because why should they care? Um, and what I found as I kept writing is the stuff that I wrote that really tended to break through on a viral level, so to speak, stuff that people would email me about out of the blue, stuff that people would tell me at a party that they'd read who didn't, you know, weren't online or didn't work in media, tended to be stuff that was much more about the broad, uh, again, affective experience, the sort of the psychic toll of living life online or of having your job or your consumption kind of dictated by the mores of the platforms. And that's been in the back of my head for a long time. And I, I read this book last year that I, I highly recommend called The Twittering Machine by a British um, uh, left-wing writer named Richard Seymour, which is a, I thought was a really interesting book because, you know, Seymour's a Marxist, but he's not taking a kind of orthodox Marxist structural view of the platforms and of expectation, exploitation on this stuff, what he wants to do is apply a real psychoanalytic lens to platform use to stop saying like, oh, we're 
hypnotized by the platforms. You know, they they use us, they abuse us, the dopamine feedback loops, whatever. It's he says, look, we use these things even when we hate them because we're trying to fill something that lasts, and we need to we need to figure out what that is. Like we need to talk about agency within the context of these big structures. And to me, that's part of what the that's what the Haugen documents can maybe sort of get us toward is thinking about mm-hmm. like what is the what is the role of agency here? What is the role of, of how these things are, how these platforms, especially something like Facebook, why we use them, what, how they make us feel when we use them, that kind of thing. Yeah. I wrote a thing for, um, for Neiman like a few years back because it really scared the living daylights out of me. The same niece that I was telling you guys about earlier, we're like sitting in my mom's backyard and she had seen some, um, a clip on Fox of, uh, she was claiming that Black Lives Matter protesters were calling for the death of police. They were saying, kill the police or something like this. And I just looked at her and I'm like, dude, that's not true. That is just not true. Like, that did not happen. I'm sorry. And she's like, and she and her and her sons, like, one of which, one of whom is now a police officer, um, both looked at me like really blankly and said, well, we, we saw it on Facebook. And I just like, I just, I don't know, I felt the earth move in a bad way you know, <laughs> under my feet listening to this. It's like, how do I, how do I, how do I respond to this? You know, it's like, what do you think that meant that you saw this on Facebook? It turned out that it had been, and these guys were prosecuted. It was like a Fox affiliate. Um, I can't remember. It might've been in Florida or Tennessee who had falsified the audio of uh, this protests and had put these audios saying kill the police you know and so they had been sending this around and they actually repeated it to me i mean this is you know this is a long time ago and i read a whole i wrote a whole thing about it um for josh benton and i was like you know people don't understand how dangerous this is it's just it's not it's it's poorly understood and like i think now people understand that it is dangerous and they start thinking a little bit more about what they share and like again like i think the haugen documents kind of indicated to people that they're participating in something larger than what they thought they felt like they were just with their family and friends and now they realize that they're in a they're in the world right yeah yeah i mean i think there's a real recognition of sort of day-to-day experience. And I suppose the other part that we should say is it's not simply that Haugen is confirming that, you know, one's experience of Facebook as a place of, you know, frustration and emotional pain. It's also that Facebook is aware of that. And Facebook has been doing research to see that, you know, that's the sort of public health cigarette company aspect of it. I think that's really important that this isn't a thing where Facebook can be like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. Because I think there was a point, the first decade or so of its existence, the company spent a lot of time being sort of like, Wow, genocide! Our bad. We had no clue that that would that would happen, and they sort of seem to get away with it based on that because they were so new and they were moving fast and breaking things. And now you have all these documents. It's like they knew, you know, they know how bad it is. They know that that teenagers are telling their younger siblings, like, "Here's how you use Instagram. Don't post anything. You're going to embarrass yourself. It's awful. All this stuff." And their response is consistently sort of like, "Well, how do we convince them that actually Facebook is good?" Um, and I think that's. You know that's a that's a that's a much harder kind of um, there's no excuse for that kind of there's nothing to get around with that. So so my my working theory on a lot of this is that it's fan service. 
And people's identities and their lives have become a form of fan service, you know, in this very boring age when all the movies are sequels to the other movies or part of extended universes. And Facebook has this, you know, the meta-universe garble. Uh, we'll see. Um, but I, there was a story, uh, I won't name names, but it was by uh, a Hunter Walker at Rolling Stone. And, and it's up today as we're recording this. And it's like a perfectly fine small story. And you can accurately convey the information as a bunch of congressional House members offered pardons to uh, insurrection organizers. That's mm -hmm. accurate, but it's absurdly misleading. And the mm -hmm. story is like a series of small, small bar information. They're like, hey, people organizing a rally met with Congress people beforehand, basically. But because you can compress it that way, it's not exactly inaccurate. The story is circulating like crazy today. Which yeah. to me is a fascinating form of fan service. Like this isn't going to be the gotcha thing. There's no need for a gotcha thing. Like we saw what happened on January 6th. There's not actually a lot of mystery yeah. to, to be solved that way. Uh, but people are desperate to circulate this and recirculate it. It's a traffic hit. All the reporting in it, as best I know, is like true and clean. And I would not doubt – I would not think otherwise from Hunter. But the packaging is, is uh, j just massively – I probably purposefully misleading, but it's, it's the way you, you sell the thing, and that's your job is to move the piece. So I, I think this is sad. It's not only happening on the right, also not to both sides things. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on Substack, and we should mention where you are uh, yeah. on Substack. It's maxread.substack.com. Uh, Thank you. It, 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 why, why newsletters are like a better pivot to video or whatever they are. I mean, my view is just it's wonderful if a bunch of people get paid to do this for a year or two and some people find what well, was getting subsidized businesses in the course of that. Um, and th that's about it. But I do think there's an argument that because it's not scalable, uh, because it demands that people actually want to process full pieces of information, that, that maybe there's something healthier here. And that gets rid of some of the, the, those perverse incentives to share terrible things. And as someone who now is on Substack, it is not on Twitter, is not on Instagram, I figured you'd have some thoughts on all that. I mean, I, 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 I under the argument that Substack can, can avoid a bunch of these uh, incentives, I think, is, is totally fair and legitimate. I, I'm like, I'm a little bit, it's my experience so far, and I've only been doing this for about a week now, is that it is still almost impossible to get your stuff noticed if it's not on Twitter, and if you're not sort of pushing the same kinds of angles that, um, you know, that 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 get you in that that conversation, um, like I'll just as an example, I talked to some uh, before I started mine. I talked to some people who have Substacks already, and and uh, somebody told me I don't think I'm betraying his confidence here. I talked to Charlie Wurzel, formerly of the Times, who has a Substack now, and he told me that uh, he so he launched his. And now he was leaving the Times, launched a Substack. I think it might have been January of this year or something. And Glenn Greenwald, who is like obviously a huge character in a bunch of people's extended media universes, uh, sort of took got, went after Charlie a little bit on Twitter, you know, or or the Times. Even the failing New York Times is losing, you know, whatever. So some I don't even it doesn't even matter what it was. The point is Charlie, not even planning to, decided to just sort of respond to Glenn a little bit that first week. And his post responding to Glenn, he told me got him more subscribers than anything else he'd written. And it was like, so in my head, and you know, I, I, I have heard the same is true of Freddie DeBoer's Substack. Freddie is a former academic who is also, a, or a current academic, I guess, who's also a writer who also has a Substack, who is very active in the kind of inter-liberal, inter-left kind of culture wars. And 
you know, in my head, it's sort of like, well, you know, growth is slow. And I like, I am fine with that. I think slow growth is probably much healthier in terms of finding something that really works, definitely connecting with an audience. But if I really need to like ramp up subscriptions quickly, I just need to wake up every day and just dump 800 words on Barry Weiss, Glenn Greenwald, Freddie DeBoer, like pro, anti, it almost doesn't matter. I just need to get mm-hmm. get people who are involved in this, you know, and and have them pay attention. So that's the sort of like, that's the negative. That's the like, you know, that's the worst case kind of like Substack just becomes an appendage of Twitter. It becomes where you, if I don't know if you guys remember like Twit Longer or whatever that was when you mm. used to like, there's a version, of, I think there's a version of Substack. I think some people's Substacks kind of are, are already this, that is just mm-hmm. an, a way to lengthen your Twitter fights or whatever. But I also find myself the newsletters I'm personally subscribed to and the ones I really like are ones that genuinely feel like they're value-added, they're directed at specific audiences, they're not just sort of piggybacking on whatever the big social media conversation of the day is. And I think, like you say, Harry, I don't think this is something every single person on the planet is going to be able to do. Every single writer, I mean, it's just not sustainable, especially at rates of $50 a year. But if enough smart and interesting people can make a can make a living doing this. People who maybe wouldn't otherwise be able to make a living doing what they do for bigger institutions, it seems totally worth it to me. And I will say, you know, to Substack's credit, I know it's been controversial in terms of the people that they've decided to partner with, but in my dealings with them, you know, and I've dealt with a lot of shitty Silicon Valley companies, they the contract that I signed with them, they, you know, I get to keep my email list if I want to walk away. I, I keep the rights to all of the stuff that I'm writing. Like, it's a very open contract, which they, maybe they'll end up regretting it from a business angle. But like, that to me is is something worth, you know, mentioning because it doesn't feel like a thing where I'm just signing over all of my work and my rights and my audience to this other platform just so that I can continue. It feels like I own and control this and maybe it'll be a success, maybe it won't. But um, whatever I do th- over the course of this next year as my sort of advance runs through, I will get to keep at the end of it. I won't, I won't just be starting from zero again. I really appreciate, I mean, I talked to a lot of people who made the same move that you made, Max, and and I asked every single one of them, like, you know, what's the contract and can you leave? Like, a lot of people, um, as as far as I know, everybody has this much standard. Like, if you leave, you don't get the prorated money, but you can leave. You're not, like, um, bound to, like, produce X number of posts or whatever. My worry is that having looked at some of these contracts that... um you know, the deal can be changed without notice at any given point. And so, you know, there's no sort of ownership. And that's like the difference between this kind of a deal and what we're trying to do at Brickhouse, right? We're like, yeah. this is like, we own it. We have no money, obviously, but um, <laughs> yet, but <laughs> uh, we, nobody can change the deal or yeah. ask us to do anything. And so like, I, I think that that's going to come maybe to be an important thing. So do you see, what do you see for the future as the possible vulnerabilities of this thing? I mean, I think that's absolutely one of them. I mean, you know, I should say for all that I'm praising my paymasters that, you know, the, the trouble with media startups like Substack or platform startups is that is, it's like the first few years are always great and everybody's really generous. And then it's when the investors get it interested in where their money's gone and when their payout's coming that the screws start to turn. Um, so 
whether that whether the the particular weakness is the is the is in the ability of them to change their contracts uh whether it's going to come in some kind of you know like uh assertion of ownership over um over mailing lists or over uh copyright for newsletters i don't have a clear sense i mean you know i, I don't want to disparage the work of the people that i've worked with who i do think are mostly former writers and editors themselves who i think are pure of heart and want to do the best things. But, you know, it, it often doesn't matter much when Mark Andreessen decides he wants to make sure that he's getting whatever it is he thought he wanted out of this thing. Um, For so, the moment, I mean, yeah, there's a waterfalls of beautiful stuff coming, so I'm not going to complain about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the joke that uh, there was some, I'm trying to remember where I saw this quote. Uh, I think it might have been about fusion, but there was a... Uh, Somebody was writing about the death, the, the rise and fall of fusion, and they said, you know, there's there's every every couple of years there's a big faucet of money, and certain writers are really good at going and standing under the faucet of money. And I don't want to be totally cynical about what I'm doing because I am finding the newsletter really fun, and I do want people to sign up, and I'm putting a lot of work and effort into it. But it's nice when the faucet of money is turned on you, frankly. Heck yeah. I, we need money, man. You got you need it for like food and stuff. Well, I mean, you know, my my unit right now is months of childcare, basically. So you know, it's like if yeah. I can look at a look at a check and say, okay, that gets me through June next year or whatever, that feels pretty good. There's a big disconnect between the kind of raises that we're seeing, for example, in the crypto world, and the kind of money that you know is spent on on something like even Substack, which is a huge, huge project. You know, like what what you need to pay a bunch of writers to live um, is not very much money at all. But like what you need to persuade venture capitalists that they're going to get rich, that's just a whole other order of magnitude of everything. It's just not, you know, they're not commensurate, you know, these two things. And this, so this is another question. One of the things that I think is a could be improving Substack, and I know that is what we're trying to do at the Brick House, and it is good for media, and I don't really care where it comes from, is a way to aggregate free-minded people who are able to say whatever the fuck they want. You know, like you're saying, it's really hard for you to surface your stuff if you don't pick a fight with Glenn Greenwald. And by the way, I would disagree. You have to fight with him. He has to be <laughs> mad at you. If he's mad at you, then everybody will get all excited and they all start getting into thing, you know? And I mean, fortunately for us all, he's always angry, so. Yeah. <laughs> always, but, always an opportunity. Yeah, there's like a way to poke that hornet's nest any old time. Anyway, mm. but I mean, for intelligent people who want to find out what the hell's going on, it would be really nice if there was a way to say, all right, Max is talking about Facebook, you know, Tom Skoka is talking about, you know, Dune, whatever, you know, and these things are all together and they're all good. You yeah. Know? And I, I would help with that if we could do that. I mean, I should I should use this to plug. I'm right now uh, have joined a very loose uh, sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? A loose agglomeration, a clan of lefty-ish writers called discontents. Um, and oh, right. the 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 you know there's a Discord attached to it that if you are a subscriber you can join and chat with some of the writers who are involved. There's a weekly newsletter that includes selections from this. Uh, from from each of the newsletters or as many of the newsletters have published mm -hmm. that week. Um, There's so you know, many good I, writers there. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the thing about this, like it is with everything, is it's like, I don't know, I think it makes, it definitely makes some difference, but I don't know 
how much of a difference, and I don't know how long, how 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 sustainable it is in the long run. Um, I mean, I actually think, for what it's worth, and this doesn't this doesn't quite sort of answer your question, but the thing that is most interesting to me right now, in terms of what something like discontents does, uh, or um, uh, my friend Jay Kang's podcast with um, uh, Tammy and and Andy called. Um, uh, time to say goodbye is a lot of these places have discord chat rooms attached to them. So what you're doing is, is you don't just have a publication, but you have a whole community of theoretically like-minded people that around which a publication or a, a collection of publications is the sort of, um, the, you know, the center of gravity, but that allows both for, I, you know, the, the, the creation of people who feel attached, you know, just from a business perspective, the creation of people who feel attached to what you're doing. But also, like, I would hope allows for the raising up and kind of distribution of people who are doing similar work, um, things that are kind of in your general neighborhood and atmosphere. Um, you know, I, I think early comment sections had, had sometimes had that feel. You know, I think the, the way the blogosphere, so to speak, people got raised up because they commented on each other's blogs a lot. Um, so I think one one challenge, let's, let's put it this way, like one challenge for Substack is, you know, if you if, if the end goal of Substack is to move, sort of create a new conversation, we either move the conversation away from Twitter or create a new non-Twitter conversation, it's a question of how you facilitate that kind of community or those kinds of conversations without it immediately being overtaken by like the sort of imperatives of an ad of a platform like Twitter or whatever. Max, is, is that work you particularly want to be doing? Like you, you're, you're a writer as I think of you, right? And, and, and some of that, which I think is a, an excellent and much better form of fan service, but it's like a different set of, yeah. of job functions. And it's putting people out there as characters and like, like, like talking to, their, their listenership and then sometimes absorbing that listenership into the set of characters. Gawker had, had a real talent for, for that particular thing. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, is, is, is that good? Is that okay? Or, or is that just necessary? You know, the reason I resisted asking Substack about doing a deal for a long time was exactly what you're saying, which is that sort of, it seems like for it to be a full-time job that it's, kind it's you have to be a character that you have to be a youtuber and i think that like maybe maybe the way to divide it up is to say that i don't think sort of enterprise journalists enterprise reporters this seems like a really bad idea for them both because it's like they should be spending a lot of their time foying the government also because most of them are frankly like unlikable assholes because that's what makes them good at their job but like op-ed writers arguably that's kind of what they've always been you know my friend i have a friend who likes to say that you know, basically what, you know, the relationship of like boomers to the New York Times op-ed page is of Zoomers to YouTubers or whatever. It's like you see David Brooks every week and he's your buddy and he's got ideas that you want to hear from and you're interested in what's going on. And so because the kind of writing I do is much closer to the op-ed side, I think at some point I just have to face facts and accept that if I'm going to be doing something like this, part of it is going to be about me, per, me, Max Reed, the per, the character Max Reed, the personality Max Reed, and you know the, there are benefits to that. Like on the one hand, yeah, it's like it requires me to sort of play a character. It maybe requires me to spend 
extra time doing fan service work, like you say. But it also means that I have a, a sort of longer leash than I might otherwise have. Because if I assume that people are signing up to the newsletter because they want to spend a little bit of time with me and inside my brain, then it means I can say, okay, this is a newsletter about technology, but this week I'm going to write about something different. And this week I'm going to do something else. And I, I can figure that I haven't alienated people based on that. But I do, but like, it, one of many reasons why this probably isn't can't be the only model for paying for journalism is exactly what you're saying. That they're not all great writers, not all important writers, not all writers who serve important functions are going to be able to or want to or should need to do all that extra stuff. Yeah. Okay. I think this, you're like a novelist, you know, like more than an op-ed writer. <laughs> like, like, you know, op-ed writers are not serious people. I mean, I'm friends with a lot of them, and I love them. And I love them and <laughs> I'm right them, fucking but... here. I'm right here, Maria. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know. No, you do a lot of things, Harry. <laughs> you You're have... a jack of all trades, Harry. You've got You're everything going on. A Harry of all trades. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not. I mean, you know, you're a great editor and all this other stuff. Like, you know, you're like a king. You're a media kingpin. That's different. But, um what Max does, I mean, in, like my opinion is very well suited to this newsletter sort of format or what its successor will be, I think. Like, cause you know, the other shoe is going to drop at some point. I don't know how, but anyway, when somebody is serious, you know, and they, they take on ideas rather than like, you know, and like a novelist or a serious writer, or like a, a, a great sort of, I don't know, nonfiction writer is telling you something because it's, thinks that person thinks it's important for you to know stuff not because they're capering you know <laughs> it's like, yeah <laughs> and i mean opinion writers have this really terrible tendency to caper you know so yeah. i think that's really i mean important. i hope i hope that's true and, and we'll see and you know it, it depends a lot on i think that even even at the best you still spend a lot of time self-promoting and a lot of time trying to get the word out there but i don't know that that's different for, from anybody sure. i think that's kind of what Everybody does these days. Um, Capitalism. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so Max, exactly. t take us out with a little self-promotion. Where should people go? What should they be doing? Like, like how, how are they getting their money to you? So go to maxread.substack.com. Um, you can sign up. I, it's still the beginning. I'm not putting anything behind the paywall for the first month and a half at least. So if you're skeptical, please sign it up. Check out. See what is there. Um, you know, the, the, the newsletter is about platforms. It's about media. It's about technology. It's about the funny feeling you get when you go online. It is, as I've been hinting, also about whatever is on my mind this week. Um, uh, and it is evolving as we go. Yay. It's really good. I don't know. I like it. Thank you. It's really nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Max. And yeah. best of luck with the newsletter. We'll look forward to reading it. Great. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks, thanks.